Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. Slate Culture Gap Fest Crash. I dropped a vase edition. It's Wednesday, August 2nd, 2017. <laughs> On today's show, Dunkirk is the new Christopher Nolan movie. Uh, it's a film about the famous World War II non-battle in which hundreds of thousands of Allied troops were evacuated by patriotic British citizens manning their own small boats. And then 36 Questions is the latest in a new trend towards the scripted podcast. Uh, this one is from the producers of Limetown. It's a musical about a married couple getting to know one another all over again after the wife's deceptions have been revealed. And finally, the shifting history and valence of the concept selling out with the wonderful musician Franz Nicolay of The Hold Steady and uh, many other projects. But joining me right now is Slate's editor, uh, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. Valence. Uh, we don't often use that word on this show, do we? I've been accused like, of overusing valence. I feel like I'm a frequent valence abuser. <laughs> I talk about valences a lot. Uh, and I should introduce uh, Slate's film critic, Danny Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Dana was joking that we're going to sing. We're going to sing the whole podcast today before we started. And with friends, Nicolay, maybe we can. <laughs> we get some accompaniment. This is just the banter before the first big I want number. <laughs> What do we want on this show? <laughs> we just want to gab. I had, f- I had five minutes of hot material on Valence, and you guys just cut it cut it right off. We went straight to doing be... the show as a musical. But... <laughs> Hitler's advancing war machine had conquered all of Western Europe and was essentially had pushed a quarter million more Allied soldiers to the very edge of the continent. And this is the moment when the Churchillian moment when England stands alone and uh, and between the Nazis and the loss of Western civilization, unable to risk the loss of any more of the British Navy, it looked as though the soldiers might be left for dead. But then 700 small boats, fishing boats, pleasure boats came to the rescue of the troops. Nolan has told this story in three separate but finally converging timelines and perspectives, one from land, one from sea, one from air. The movie stars Kenneth Branagh, Mark Rylance, and Tom Hardy, and a large ensemble cast. Uh, ben, can we even listen to a clip? There's uh, close to no dialogue in this film. We have a trailer that we can listen to that might get you give you a sense of its mood. Let's let's see if it gives it gives us a sense of its mood. You can practically see it from here. What? Home. We have a job to do. I'm not going back. He's on me. I'm on him. Take me home. Dunkirk. Ready PG-13. See it in 70mm July 21st. I mean, it gets the score, the Hans Zimmer score, which has that tick-tock and that kind of no, booming my, like, symphonic sound. heart rate accelerated just listening to the trailer. Also note Dunkirk. Even in the trailer, they call it Dunkirk, with the emphasis on the Kirk. Dunkirk. Well, it is a French word, right? Uh, Originally, Dunkirk. It's a French town. All right, fine, Dana. You can pronounce <laughs> it that way. <laughs> I'm going to call it Dunkirk. Let's converge our timelines here. Um, Dana... <laughs> I uh, peeked at your review this time to discover that you're not a Nolan, you're not really a Nolan head going in, but you might be more of one uh, coming out. You really like this movie. This movie blindsided me with how much I liked it. I mean, I, I don't like to go in, you know, with too many preconceptions, but but I haven't maybe ever loved a Christopher Nolan movie and at the most have sort of grudgingly admired them. And for the very reasons that I felt like he could have ruined a war movie of any kind, which is that, you know, his movies, I mean, we know these criticisms of Nolan, right? They can be ponderous, they can be pretentious, they can be loud. The Hans Zimmer scores, who he almost always works with, this composer, can be overwhelming and ever-present. Um, the score is sort of ever-present, actually, in Dunkirk, but because of the shape of the movie, which we can get into in our discussion, it almost works as a symphony, kind of a symphonic music video or something like that. There were so many things about this movie that surprised me, and maybe one of the main ones was that it was short. <laughs> it is not 
ponderous mm-hmm. at all. And, uh, and because of its very, uh, ensemble approach to, to casting and to scripting, essentially it has no main protagonist. And, uh, as Julia said earlier, not that much audible dialogue. I mean, I think they had to grab that Kenneth Branagh line for the trailer because much of the dialogue is either drowned out by crashes, overlapped with other dialogue, sort of difficult to hear. All of this makes it sound like it would be this punishing experience to see Dunkirk, but I didn't find that at all. I found it, uh, one of the, best depictions of kind of you couldn't really call it a battle right because it's a mass evacuation but mm-hmm. of of yeah. military experience of being in the midst of you know bombardments and, and confusion uh that i've seen and uh and that it mastered the three timeline thing which for example in inception inception nolan does something very similar and i found it pretentious and annoying and i, I actually thought it worked beautifully in this movie so there are maybe some some things that kept me from absolutely falling in love with this movie, but I admired it tremendously and was was completely wrapped up. We should get into this as well, is that this movie is very experiential, right? It doesn't, uh, as Nolan says in one interview about it, have many God shots. You know, there's not a lot of overhead kind of maps showing yes. you what's going on. And you're really plunged into the midst of the experience as if you were one of these young soldiers, confused, bombarded, not understanding the context of what's happening. And all of that just adds hugely to its emotional effectiveness. Interesting. Julia, um, you'll forgive me. I'm not sure um, clear exactly where you stand on the issue of Christopher Nolan, um, but I'm curious to hear and I'm curious to hear how this uh, altered or modified it. Yeah, I have not really had strong feelings about a Christopher Nolan movie probably since Memento. I, you know, I admire the creativity and brio of Inception, even if I thought it was a little sodden in the end. The dark. It's imaginative as all get out. Yeah, that's for sure. it's creative and and excellent to watch. And I think his Batman trilogy also is like visually pleasing. And the the one with Heath Ledger is, is amazing. The subsequent one with Bane and we'll get to Christopher Nolan's habit of putting things on top of Thomas Hardy's lovely mouth later on in our discussion. But he's uh, not the only one who does it either. George Miller also covered his mouth in Mad Max Fury Road. God damn it. And Tom Hardy specifically has the most beautiful mouth Let in show business. Tom Hardy's mouth be free, people. <laughs> Those lips. Uh, anyway. Um so anyway, I don't extremely long way of saying I don't have strong feelings about Christopher Nolan. This movie uh, is extremely beautiful, uh, not in a, a jarring or lurid way, but it's just, it, it's, each shot is beautifully composed. And I agree with you, Dana, that in terms of putting you in the experience of war, it's, it's very powerful and horrifying. And one of the things that makes it so is how young the boys seem. I mean, it really doesn't, I think Christopher Nolan has mentioned this in interviews. They don't cast like 35 year olds and ask you to believe that they're 17 year old soldiers. Right. There's, There's an 18 like, year old playing the closest thing the movie has to a protagonist. Though yeah. He speaks very little. And it made me think about my sons and the people fighting wars now and the uh, carelessness of the people currently in charge of deciding whether we end up in wars anytime soon. Like it, it, I found it emotionally powerful. I also, it made me really curious about the evacuation of Dunkirk, and I went back and read a bunch about it afterwards because it wasn't a part of uh, World War II history that I knew much about. Um, I did have a question, though, which is the, the, the triple time frame thing, which I think we can explain. So we follow a set of soldiers on the beach for one week. We follow a set of civilians coming over in a civilian craft to pick up some soldiers for one day, and then we follow... Uh, the mouthless Thomas Hardy and <laughs> one of his fellow pilots um, in the air for one hour, and the the three timelines, each of each operating in a different time signature, overlap and eventually converge. All of which is quite clever, and I'm sure if you watch the movie three times, like there's many extremely fine details. Like in a shot from one of the planes, you see a capsized boat, and you see a soldier kind of skidding down the side of the boat, and then in a boat's eye view, you see that same soul. Like I, I, I imagine that actually all of the choreography is very precise amongst the timelines in a way that took a lot of doing. Does that help? Like, is that actually amounting to the emotional experience of the movie, or is it all kind of? tricked over on top of the movie to make it seem more interesting than it is and does it need Mm. to be made to seem more interesting it's an incredible like 
would this movie not right. have been more powerful right. if it was, if you just watched it in order? Yeah, well, it has a puzzle. It has a puzzle quality, which Christopher Nolan loves a puzzle. He, he essentially doesn't have a movie that isn't a, a giant puzzle. In this movie, I didn't feel like the puzzle structure was just a superfluous fancy trick on top, but I suppose it could still work without it. I mean, I'm just thinking of, for example, the Killian Murphy character. All right, that's one of the few named actors that we see, and he's he plays this shell-shocked soldier that's picked up by the boat piloted by Mark Rylance, who I think kind of gives the star making performance in the movie, as he tends to do, although it's a very you know small part of the movie. Um, but so Killian Murphy, when he's picked up, is completely freaked out, PTSD, been through so much, he's just shivering, he can barely speak. Then quite a bit later in the movie, you see him playing this very forceful commander on one of the rafts that's picking up soldiers. And it takes a moment to realize that that's the same guy. What happened to him? How can it be the same guy? And there's a moment, for example, where the temporal shifting, I think, does sort of effectively bring on the fog of war and make you think about how war changes individuals. And that's just Mm -hmm. one example. But I didn't think that the structure was too fancy. I did sometimes think it was hard to follow, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, a lot of people have said this is a movie that requires more than one viewing. Then a counter argument has been made by David Edelstein of New York Magazine. Well, if a movie requires more than one viewing to be understood, is it really successful storytelling? I don't know. Where do you fall there, Steve? I mean, I sort of want to see this again because I want to see it in a regular 70 millimeter as opposed to IMAX to see how that looks different. But what do you think? Well, I think that let me work my way around to answering that question. Um, but first, I mean, I, I really like the movie. It's probably my favorite of his movies. Um, and um, I, I it, it gives itself, setting aside the three timelines, it gives itself one challenge, uh, which it, uh, it masters beautifully, which is turning and not or showing how what is in some ways a kind of non-event was an event, but playing not only intelligently and not not only intelligently but profoundly with the idea that it was a non-event the unconsciousness of each of the individual particip- participants of the heroism that they've um acts of the kind of collective act of heroism that they've committed um is beautifully handled i won't give anything away towards the end of the movie right at the end of the movie i thought that was uh, an enormously powerful way to wrap up a film that's very perspectival i mean it's very much about these you know, an individual's view of war, um, and I thought because of that, it 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 um, overcame another built-in difficulty for someone like me, which is that I'm a little tired of milking uh, the sentimentality we all feel for the Greatest Generation. I think we should feel it, we do feel it, but works of art owe us something more than that sentimentality. I mean, we've had you know, Band of Brothers, we've had, um, you know, the Spielberg movie, Saving Private Ryan, and and endless histories, historical novels, historical movies, we get it. Like, this is a, a unparalleled acts of, of, of individual and, and collective courage in the face of, you know, pure evil, on and on. I thought that telling this story overcame that in a way, because there was a kind of a sense that this was maybe a massive defeat and the end of civilization and the unusual way in which it wasn't either of those things is conveyed by this film in terms of the kind of degree of difficulty that Nolan likes to assign himself. I liked it in inception because inception conveyed to me this kind of, you know, labyrinthine nausea you feel as you descend from a dream into another dream, into another dream within a dream. And I, and that's really kind of the essence of that movie is sort of descending into your own unconscious you know, level upon level, and then wondering whether or not you can escape. I thought that that was that 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 was more than just clever. It was like sort of genuinely disorienting and weird, uh, in a way that that fit the um what was thrilling about the plot of the the movie. Here, I thought the degree of difficulty was also mostly earned. I mean, I think like you've got you you do have these three distinct stories, and the and the fact that one story. That the the thing that brings Tom you know Tom Hardy the Spitfire pilot into the universe of the other people in the movie that thing only takes an hour right like so for him that's his story like that convergence at the end le- leading up to that convergence for him was only one hour's worth of his life and and in the Mark Ryland story it's 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 one day. And then in the, you know, the mole, the guy's sort of stranded on the beach. It's a full week. I thought that that, it it earned itself out. It sort of showed you that this Leviathan that is the fact of Dunkirk being evacuated had different storylines that were not the same. They were, they were radically distinct from one another and individual. And in fact, the movie begins with 
I mean, those opening images of him essentially like this Darwinian moment where the three or four people that are running with the guy who becomes the protagonist get shot and killed one by one. And you realize like, like the elemental aspect of this story, you know, the monad out of which the whole thing is built is just the individual's desire to survive the fucking experience. But the thing that comes together when, when cumulatively all those experiences are put together is somehow massive and important and i thought that 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 was what he really pulled off was was giving you the grunt's eye view and the leviathan as a as a holistic thing i mean it's kind of the movie's kind of a tour de force i thought i thought it was really remarkable i definitely would recommend that people see it i mean i as an exploration of a historical moment that's done with incredible um emotional dexterity and technical finesse like i I absolutely think people should see it. I think it's it's good. I just think the story itself is a is one that is powerfully heartwarming and there is a moment where the score changes uh, and where the people on the beach began to see that perhaps their fates may not be as doomed as they thought, which was like so treacly. I won't get into it entirely, but there's just a moment where you're like, "Oh, this is like a Lifetime movie that's just using Ooh, all this complicated. Ouch. Well, no, but uh, you're right. That's unfair given the stakes. But this is a movie that it, that has like a deep core of just let's admire the inspirational nature of wartime British bravery. Um, like that is the message of the movie. Uh, and the and the complicated structure i think tries to obscure how old-fashioned and heartwarming the message of the movie is and i'm and and i think the emotional complexity at the end of the film is much more subtle and interesting than the kind of swelling strings of the particular moment i'm thinking of which was to me the great misstep of the hans zimmer score which otherwise it was much more restrained than his scores usually are and i thought pretty powerful you know and one thing that nolan has spoken to in interviews is that there's really never been a massive filmic exploration of this deeply important moment uh, in the war before there's a long shot in atonement um, the movie from uh, about a decade ago I think uh, that takes place on the beaches of Dunkirk but there's never been an entire film about it and the point Nolan makes is that this is fundamentally a British story and it's about defeat uh, and there's no Americans in it, and it requires like the mass of the Hollywood machine to make a movie that can fully capture it. And so the notion that Nolan, at this point in his career, when he can basically be like, give me millions of dollars to make whatever movie I want, chose to tell this story, which was sort of untellable previously, because it is a story about British people losing, um, you know, and but not losing all the way, as we know, thankfully. Uh, I admire that. So I would commend people to see it. I just I'm not entirely sure it needs all the Phillips that it has. Can I add something to that commendation? Just as Slate's film critic, I want to exhort people to see it in theaters if they can. I, there's an argument about whether it matters if you see it in IMAX or not. I did, and it looked great, but I don't think it really matters. But I think seeing it on the big screen does because it's on real film, not digital. It's 70 millimeter. It is just it is a big spectacle that it is telling a small, intimate story, and it does that so well. I just can't imagine it being the same thing in a different aspect ratio on a small screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, here, here. It's got to be seen on a big screen. Okay, the movie is Dunkirk. Did I pronounce that right? I don't know, man. Dunkirk. <laughs> Dunkirk. Um, and it's in theaters near you. It's directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, and come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought about it. I'm very curious to know whether everybody loves it as much as uh, it sometimes seems as if they do. All right, moving on. All right. Well, before we uh, proceed any further, uh, Julia Turner, I'm sure we have some business uh, to attend to. What do you got there? Uh, first, in case our listeners missed it, we are doing a live show in Toronto, Canada. Our international tour continues. It will be September 13th at 7 p.m. at the Toronto Reference Library. You know, I knew we were doing it at the library, but I didn't know it was a reference library. Love a reference library. <laughs> Facts all around us. It's even dorkier. I love it. <laughs> I'm not even going to show up on stage. I'm going to be deep in the stacks looking at the rare books. 
Uh, tickets will be free and will become available at 9 a.m. on August 23rd. So put a note in your calendar for August 23rd because they are going to go fast. We are also hosting a special cocktail after party at a nearby location where you can hang out, drink, eat, and chat with us after the show. That ticket also guarantees admission, by the way. You can find out more info about tickets and more at slate.com slash live. I would also like to recommend a Slate podcast to our listeners. And this week, I would like to recommend Hang Up and Listen, the wonderful sports podcast hosted by Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis. Uh, perhaps you love sports, but are irritated by the idiotic blather of sports radio. Or perhaps like me, you don't give a shit about sports whatsoever, but you just really love Josh Levine and Stefan Fatsis and like hearing them talk. Uh, either way, you will like this show. This week, they interviewed Will Anderson, who is a person I know from the online Boggle community, of which I am a sometime member, who just won a recent Scrabble championship and discusses the exact process by which he knew to challenge the word gray hens for being spelled with the incorrect vowel. They also talk about real sports with like balls and nets and you know objects, projectiles that you're supposed to get from one place to another according to a specific set of rules. Those segments are good as well. Hang up and listen, download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In our Slate Plus segment this week, we're going to raise a few spoilerific points about Dunkirk uh, for those of you who have seen the movie, which is quite a few of you at this point. So get ready to hear segments like this and to get ad free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. You can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com slash app. And you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. It's by far the easiest way to get those bonus segments and ad free podcasts. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. Okay, finally, I want to thank you all again, those of you who left lovely reviews for us in iTunes. We're going to do one more request, and this time we have a slight amendment to the request. If you listen to the show and enjoy it, if you leave a review for us and a rating on iTunes, it's extremely helpful. It helps people discover our show. The recent bout of ratings and reviews you guys have posted have boosted our ranking on the chart, which is a real way that people discover shows to listen to. So that's a huge help to us and and helps us keep making the show that we make that you listen to every week. So if you have a chance, please go do that. Also, uh, iTunes sometimes asks you to rate how helpful the other reviews were. So we're going to try and experiment. Please uh, rate as most helpful the recent review that you would most like us to read on the podcast. We will read out loud the review deemed to be most helpful on an upcoming show. Uh, and then once we do that, we will stop bothering you about iTunes for at least six months. So thank you for indulging us. It really is a great way to help the show. We appreciate it. Uh, all right, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, 36 Questions is a new podcast. It's from the producers of Limetown. That was a sort of sci-fi brain teaser, which I have to admit I quite loved. This one is a musical written by Chris Littler and Ellen Winter. It's told in... I'm going to call it Cloverfield style. In this instance, a series of voice memos recorded by a young wife trying to win back her husband. He has discovered that she, the love of his life, has been living under an assumed name and has told him a bunch of untruths about her childhood and her background. This is a boy re-meets girl story. It is very charming. Let's listen to a clip. Pardon me. I, I know I'm not supposed to be asking questions, but your moms are loaded. Couldn't they have hired someone to do all this work on the house? They don't know. They don't know you're renovating. You know, renovating is such a strong word. Do you still smoke? Uh, yeah, that's a fire. Just, uh, just stay calm. Just, uh, just a small electrical fire. Would you hand me that blanket? Uh, yeah. For the record, Jace is putting out a fire with what looks like an antique Quaker quilt. What? Oh, damn it. I thought that was something else. Uh, Well, as you can see, your timing, as always, is impeccable. One thing, Jace, that's all I'm asking for. Uh, One thing. I came out here for one thing. And that little bitty one thing was to forget about you. All right, before we uh, before we go any further, I should say you in that clip you heard the two stars of the podcast, Jesse Shelton and Jonathan Groff, known no doubt to our listeners from Hamilton, uh, the TV show Looking and um, and Glee. The titular thirty six questions refer to a compatibility quiz that the couple found on uh, in a modern love column, and the conceit of the earbud musical is that the two will now retake the quiz this time. Uh, with uh, Natalie Nay Judith providing truthful answers. Uh, Julia, 
after all that run up, tell me, what did you think of this? Oh, <laughs> it's like asking me to oh. shoot a kitten in a bucket. <laughs> it's so plucky and well-meaning and i love jonathan groff all right well at least it's a kitten (laughs) dana dana there's a cute little kitten playing in a little barrel and i've just handed you a 22 what are you gonna do okay can i pet it a little bit before i shoot it Yeah, give it a few ear strokes. Oh, oh my God. I mean, no, seriously, this has been a successful podcast, so I think we can feel comfortable. We're not going to ruin its chances of getting heard by telling our honest opinion about it. I really wanted to love this because I love the idea of a podcast musical. Obviously, the, the cast is really good. Uh, some of the songs are really good. I mean, I guess the objections would be several. First of all, I think we can all concur on the point that it is too long, right? This is a three-act podcast. Uh, each act is about, I guess if you cut out the ad reads, which are also a little long, uh, is about 45 minutes. So it gets pretty close to being a three-hour musical. Now, if you ask me, do you want to go see a three-hour in-person Broadway musical, not in your earbuds, that has the following content and the 36-question story was described to me, I would probably say, no, that sounds like it would have to strain to fill that length. And indeed, the podcast does. It feels massively under-edited. I just, it just really needs some digital scissors to be taken to particularly the dialogue. I think, for example, if it had been almost a sung-through musical with less talking, it might have been more bearable mm-hmm. to listen to because some of the songs, and I'll get to some specific titles of, you know, the songs that I actually wanted to go back and listen to, were were quite beautifully written and it did that musical thing of expressing a specific emotion. But almost all of the banter in between was just painfully cutesy. There's this, I'm embarrassed to even get into Henry, but there's this mascot <laughs> duck character uh, who waddles around in the background <laughs> quacking is completely unnecessary and just accomplishes nothing in the story except to make the listener cringe and want to cut it off. But I did listen to all three almost hours, both, both because I wanted to be able to hear how it all comes out. It's sort of a mystery, right? What is she hiding about her past? Why did she lie about her name and family, et cetera? And, you know, because I wanted to be able to say with confidence, you know, even listening to the last minute that this did not quite work as a musical. I mean, more power to people who want to make podcast musicals, and they should probably listen to this one to think about what they do and don't want to do. But I would not send friends to listen to 36 questions. Yeah, I would send people curious about the form, curious about innovation in the form, people who love musicals, who are looking for more podcasts to listen to. Like, it's it's definitely interesting and uh, ambitious and ambitious. And Jonathan Groff is an incredibly talented voice actor and singer. And I think Jesse Shelton is also like the performances, I think, are good. But I feel like if you got a master of audio drama to listen to the first act, like there were just so many moments where they over explained all the sounds like he's in this decrepit house. He's fixing it up. She shows up. She's confronting him. He's run away after she's revealed the deceit in their relationship. And so there's like all there's like a really long passage where you hear a noise like crash. And then they're like, oh, God, that lamp just broke. And then they're like, Creak! and it's like the shelves are falling off the wall. And it's like, just give us a little credit. Like, I don't know. There's just some some like basic rules of audio drama and sound that it feels like. Yeah, they... it's not spare. Nothing goes unexplained, unexposited, if it can possibly be explained. And it's somewhat papered over with personality. Like she's kind of a fidgety, explain, explainy, like voice memo. But that's the other thing. There's sort of conceits upon conceits. So to make this work, one, the conceit is that their whole relationship hinges around having asked each other the 30 six questions on an early date and then re-asking them now that the the secrets between them have been dispensed with. And then there's a second conceit, which is that she's some kind of voice memo obsessive who's constantly recording voice memos of everything in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what you're listening to. Like <laughs> Reason the enough for the breakup right there. Forget about the fake identity. Somebody who records everything on voice memos. <laughs> well, and it's goodbye. not even ever explained. Well, like, yeah. you know, in, in different audio dramas, like in Night Vale, there's the conceit that it's the radio station. I mean, I'm not a, as big a fan of Night Vale as I yes. can has become but like there's a reason for it to be audio similarly in um right. in the message the show that that Pan- well, panoply did like there it's a person producing a podcast and then she kind of gets pulled into the world like there's in general one way to do an audio drama is to make a conceit for like the found audio you're listening to presumably another is to just do it like the show two monday that the bbc did like you're just there you're listening to stuff but um, I would have dispensed with the double conceit. 
like either have the 36 questions conceit or have the voice memo conceit, but having the conceit upon the conceit plus a duck, you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> plus a duck. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's so true. Yeah. No, I think it's conceit upon conceit plus a duck. I mean, um, no, I, I, well, a couple things. One is that it's, it's on the one hand, it's, it's, it's a brand new form in a way, the podcast, you know, scripted drama or musical or whatever. And so this is very early on, uh, you know, they're trying a musical that's maybe they're maybe the first or the first to do it in a slightly bigger way. Um, so I think degree of great inflation here is, is merited. I actually thought the songs were really strong. Um, and uh and the performances were charming uh and i'm i'm it's early enough in my history of listening to these things that i'm just curious how people are going to solve the problems that everyone trying it is going to face and julia you've put your finger on it it's like, well, by what conceit are you going to allow for this audio to have been generated and you know the it, most people i think are probably going to reject the kind of 19th century novel approach of the omniscient narrator and a voiceover because it's just going to be burdensome to listen to and 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 clunky um and so you've got to keep coming up with reasons for someone to have uh, recorded enough audio that you get a full coherent narrative out of it that's really hard like i give, i give them credit for for trying something. Uh, and then on the other hand, it's quite an old fashioned form and in a charming way. I mean, the, the radio drama, uh, scripted radio drama was a dominant popular art form up until, you know, the advent of television. And then radio became all the other things it now is as a medium and conceded drama to TV and, and movies and on and on. I think, you know, I think the earbud is, is a wonderfully weird and intimate way to listen to a drama. It's going to be different even than listening to to a radio it is going to be like there's going to be something distinctive about podcast drama or scripted podcasts and we don't yet know what it is and we'll one day look back on this as a crude building block but one that had to be or and, and, and all of its peers crude building blocks that nonetheless needed to be laid down for more sophisticated things to then be done subsequently so in that sense i really appreciated it i one thing i would i would contest about your earlier statement steve about the the cloverfield what you call the cloverfield framing device i don't know that as this genre develops if it does that's going to continue to be necessary i mean it seems like it's it's necessary because of the newness of the genre right when you see a movie you don't need a, a reason that somebody has a camera on there's there can be sort of an omniscient supposition mm -hmm. that this is just a thing that happened that we're, right. we're witnessing no 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 well, and no, that's but why when you're listening, you're deprived, you're deprived of all of the information delivery system that is human sight. I mean, so you're, you're in this weird position where, you know, is dialogue absent an expositional, you know, omniscient narrator, you know, can dialogue carry it? And if not, conceits may be necessary in order to have a certain amount of explanation gone, but maybe not. I mean, that has yet to be worked out, I think. Right. I mean, this is why I think the the example I mentioned, Truman Bay, uh, that does not involve one of these conceits, it, it makes sense that it's from the BBC, where actually the tradition of the radio drama like never died. They've just been making radio dramas for a century, but we never listened to them because there wasn't podcasting and we didn't listen to that much British radio before the advent of podcasting, which made things streaming on BBC radio more available to American audiences. Like, they just do it. There's a There's a... I forget because I listened to the first season, but not the second. So it's been a while, but there's kind of a narrator set up up top and a narrator outro. And I don't think that much narrator in between. I think in between it's a lot of just discussion and dialogue and really sophisticated sound design that does not um, uh, does not involve crash a lamp. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, whatever. It's fine. It plays fine. You sort of have to it does feel a little hokey for a minute. You're like, I guess I'm listening to a like drama set in an ancient civilization oh well all right and then you're like if, if that's what you're along for the ride for like as soon as you listen to the first three minutes you're like all right cool that's what this needed this needed the courage of its own convictions a little more spareness in the way it was built and sort of care in the audio design and uh and i think it, it could have hung together as a as a really good musical oh and, and take out henry the duck gotta take out henry the goodbye duck, duck. <laughs> shoot the kitten and the all duck right. um <laughs> <laughs> all right well it's a it's a, a podcast musical it's called 36 questions uh we're somewhat split on it but i would say listen um give it a give it a try at least come to facebook.com slash culture fest and let us know what you thought of it okay moving on 
The idea of selling out your conscience, artistic or otherwise, for money probably is as old as, well, money itself. The term as we understand it, selling out, rose to prominence in the 60s in relation to folk and jazz music. It makes sense. Both of those are prized for authenticity and purity of motives. Betraying your ideals, however, is not what it used to be. Can one even sell out anymore? The once explosive accusation of calling someone a sellout writes Franz Nikolai in Slate magazine, aimed at artists who make accommodations with commercial industry, has come to seem obsolete and a little naive. We're joined by Mr. Nikolai. I am a huge, huge fan of your musicianship. You are the keyboardist for The Hold Steady, uh, in addition to many other things. And uh, I've listened to you um, for a long time. Uh, that is a distinctive part of that rock and roll band. Uh, you are you're you're really you're really talented. Well, I'm thanks. amazed you're on my show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> um i i i guess why don't you um i'm really curious to know why i mean you are a writer you're a travel writer you're a you know a man of many talents but i'm curious what motivated you to write this essay and what motivated you to write it now as someone who came up through punk rock as someone who was uh, a child of the 90s in terms of listening to you know in terms of my awakening to pop music it's always been a part of the the intellectual conversation about about both of those things um it was the 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 etymological research that's the the core of this particular piece was part of research for a, a book proposal that i was working on a couple years ago um but it's part of you know a, lo a longer train of thought about the inner about how you make a living as a musician, which everybody who's a professional musician has probably always thought about, but particularly in the last twenty years. Um, and my th and my theory of the case sort of is that for a long time there were two ways of making a living as a musician. You know, the the patronage model or the troubadour model. Um, you either you worked for the court or um, or the church or an aristocratic patron. Uh, you're, you know, Bach, Luli, Palestrina, so on, or you're, you're the, you know, travel town to town troubadour singing for your supper. And then there was a hundred year window with the advent of recording technology and mass commercial culture where all of a sudden there was a different way of making a living, um, in which you could sort of stay home and play the artiste and let your widgets go out and do the work for you, uh, remotely. And then around the turn of the century, of this, this century, that window is, is more or less closed, at least in terms of the giant sloshing pools of money around it. That, that bracketing creates the, the conditions for the discussion around what, what we're talking about selling out about art versus commerce in, in the sense that, um, um, all of a sudden there, there were, um, independent models, um, and, Artists with uh, with financial incentives that were separate from the pragmatic, and you see that manifest in in sort of two different tracks. Like we talk about selling out as if it's the same argument as um, art for art's sake, but it's I actually think of it as two different tracks. Like the art for art's sake argument is one that's the elite reaction to middle brow mass culture in the wake of the industrial age, and then abetted by. Um, mass commercial reproduction of, of music, right? This is the, the Benjamin art argument about the theology of art replacing the art of theology, that there has to create a, a mystique around art that, um, that separates it from the art that's consumed by, by the non-elite, non-esthetes. Um, as opposed to what I'm tracking in this piece is the, um, is the political track, the sort of working class track, the idea of that selling out as an American term, as a, as a vernacular term, comes out of, um, gilded age leftist politics of the labor unionizing movements in the twenties and thirties, and that it only crosses over into the art world, the music world, when the music that's connected with those politics, i.e. the Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger folk music meets, um, in the in the late fifties, early sixties, with the civil rights um, movement, and and it crosses over into and th those two streams sort of sort of cross there when um, rock and roll begins to have artistic pretenses, and then you have um, the art for art's sake idea crossing paths with the political idea. I love that Dylan is a central figure in this piece because the first time I ever had. An argument, a, a large argument about selling out and whether it existed or even mattered 
was another Bob Dylan moment, which was when Bob Dylan uh, did an ad for Victoria's Secret. And I edited our advertising column at Slate, written then by Seth Stevenson. Um, and basically like a kind of decrepit, withered uh, skeleton of Bob Dylan with wild hair, like played tangled up in blue in a gigantic palazzo while like Victoria's Secret angels flitted about. And Seth was so aggrieved. He was like, why this monstrosity? Why would Dylan do this? He doesn't need the money. Why would Victoria's Secret even want this? And I uh, was just like, who cares? He's Bob Dylan. He can do whatever he wants. It's not going to ruin Bob Dylan. And and it's it's been like a what I think Seth perceives as a generational schism between I mean, he's like three years older than me or something, but he's like, this is the big difference between me and the generation three years younger than me. <laughs> it's like, I still believe in selling out is a bad thing. And and you do not. And I I, I, at some point, perhaps in this segment, we can interrogate why I had that response. One thing that was interesting in reading your piece and, and some other work on this subject in preparation for this segment is there's an obvious economic argument, which is, uh, there's not a great way for musicians to make money in the last 20 years. The ways that they did for the, you know, uh, decades previous dried up with the rise of file sharing and, streaming um so it's really hard to sneer at the likes of grizzly bear if they put their ad in a volkswagen commercial um although some still do it <laughs> um but I, but that that fight we were having even sort of before i mean streaming was just beginning to excavate the money in publishing in 2004 when bob dylan did that so i think there is a cultural and not just economic uh shift behind the the changing perceptions of selling out well, in a way, the best defense of Dylan in that in that in in that scenario is that he didn't need the money. He just sort of thought it would be funny or interesting. It's sort <laughs> of trolling. It's an act yeah, of trolling, trolling, really. Like the Christmas Carol's record. Yeah. yeah, it was very Dylan. It was sort of a, 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 a nonsensical lark. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, going back to the the patron and the troubadour ideas that you know, you the immediately you saw people go, saying, okay, now everybody has to get back on the road and become these these troubadours again, or um, you know, the patronage model becomes corporate sponsors or crowdfunding, you know, a sort of crowdfunded patron pa- patron system, um, patreons, patreons, yeah, if you will. Um, the I mean, the problem is since everybody's run to both of those wells, is that both of those have been diluted, you know. There was an article, I think it was in the in the Times a couple of years ago, that was already pointing out that the, you know, ad licensing money was not what it had been because, you know, advertisers, of course, quickly realized that that musicians were not as um, afraid of this as they as they thought. So uh, they'd sell out cheaper. They would sell out cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Franz, I really like how far back you take this term. I always love a good etymological search into the history of a, of a phrase. And you go all the way back to the first usage in the OED of selling out uh, during the Civil War, saying that it didn't have the same meaning then as it would now. But I wanted you to trace a little bit the, um, the, the history of the intersection of of race and fights about selling out because I mean you mentioned the sort of white folkies versus the black civil rights movement but even earlier than that for example you cite this this great beef between Duke Ellington and a critic of of his work and if you could just talk a little bit about you know the the mingling of white and black music and how that's led to accusations of selling out I thought that was fascinating right so again this is another another sort of two track conversation that the um, progressive con- political context. Uh, of the term in the 1880s, 1890s, and then in the the labor movements of the of the early part of the 20th century is primarily a white context, and the 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 folk music that comes out of that is also primarily white working class uh, context. Parallel to that, there's the there's the conversation a little bit later in the in the I guess in the 40s and 50s. Um, where a new generation of African American mus- musicians, um, you know, a lot of them around bebop, but also in, in R&B and to a certain extent in gospel, um, were interrogating the, an older generation of African American musicians about the extent of their accommodation with, uh, with white culture. Um, and that was a term that was thrown around there, and that's why I think that the, the that it makes sort of the, t- the, t- the term makes the leap into mainstream pop culture discourse at the period in which the white folkies 
were engaging in the civil rights struggle. You know, there's a there's a example in the piece that encapsulates that about uh, you know between John Hammond and I think it was Duke Ellington. In which I mean, essentially, the beef between them, as I as I read it, is that is that. Ellington by even, for example, writing songs that resemble Tin Pan Alley standards rather than, you know, traditional Afro-American jazz is is selling out. That the very fact of essentially mingling and and uh, appropriating bits of other cultural languages into his music is an act of, of selling out for this kind of hard left critic. Mm-hmm. And is that critic, was that critic a white guy? John Hammond was, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you may not be surprised to hear. Um <laughs> I mean, it, the the larger mm-hmm. argument is about whether you can have whether there's such a thing as popular art, right? Uh, Ellington believed there was, and that it was he didn't that that it wasn't about calling jazz America's classical music. It was about uh, integrating all aspects of American music into jazz, as opposed to having it be a singular production of the African American experience. Mm. So, Franz, it seems to me that every version of selling out, at least in the you know last century or so has alluded to or or rests upon or presumes some form of purity whether you know r- racial purity or um or you know the authenticity of the labor movement vis-a-vis middle class expectations and tastes uh or you know the sort of starving artist notion of purity you know your devotion to your art regardless of the you know approbation of the marketplace and giving it that history you know, one sense is that these are modes of authenticity that we no longer, you know, fully believe in. But do we believe in them somewhat? I mean, can you find contexts in which you hear something or see something and you think that is a fucking sellout? Well, I think I would associate myself a little bit with with the the sentiment that that Trent Reznor uh, expressed in that Vulture interview, which is that we understand that this is. Uh, you know, everyone's got to do what they do in the contemporary marketplace, but it's still a little bit of a bummer. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm 39. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know if that is the same reaction that people who grew up in the, in the streaming age still have. Um, I would be curious to hear some people's responses to that. I would imagine that they do. I would imagine that the, you know, the, the, the leftward drift that you anecdotally hear about among, you know, people under 30 would include some aspect of um, that kind of a, of a of a political reaction or of a reaction to accommodation with, um, you know, capitalist mass culture. But I don't know that for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're all too old. Yeah. I, di- I didn't grow up in the streaming era either. I feel like when I, I the most recent bummer sensation I've had around music selection is actually not in advertising, but in the uh, music choices in the Netflix show Friends from College, which I'm going to try and make us talk about next week because it's fascinatingly good and bad at the same time. And I think we could have a good discussion about it. But the 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 bummer for me is that basically they've used like every single favorite song I had in high school to underscore some scene, many mediocre ones. Uh, You've been big chilled. Yes, exactly. And so that's, to me, the bummer is more like, oh, I'm a fucking demographic. Like, then they're chasing me. <laughs> this show is for me. I'm, this is like the 30 something of now, and I'm the 30 something. <laughs> and like, they put like Liz Fair never said nothing as like the outro song. And that is such a good outro song, but ugh, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the target market, you know? And also that all of that music growing up, you felt like it was like, such a response to the idea of the target market you know it was such a like we're we're outside of this um kind of obvious pop space and now it's just like nope that's just who i am france i before we finish the segment i have to congratulate you for somehow writing this essay without using the word neoliberal or neoliberalism once So, I mean, the reason I point that out is that over the, in addition to the generational shift, or maybe this is what caused the generational shift, is over the last 15, 20, 25 years, the market has become the dominant paradigm, you know, uh, for thinking about how people sell their human capital, uh, price and sell their, their talents and their human capital. And it's become so pervasive that, one doesn't even think one can't sell out. There's nothing that one one holds in reserve from the market. Whereas, for example, perhaps in Europe, where neoliberalism is less 
fully dominant and there's a larger welfare state, people still can think in terms of selling out, of giving into the marketplace in ways that we can't even anymore in the United States. I mean, it's always a, it, the whole thing is a question about ca- the intersection of capitalism and, and art. I mean, that's again, to bring it back to the, the Gilded Age rise of the term, this is the first period in American history where there was such concentrated capital in individual private hands as to be a malign influence on, on individuals or on politicians, right? Or, um, so obviously the, the incentives are different in a place in in social democracies where art is subsidized more broadly by the government i mean i think there's an there's a one of the stories around this that i've always been s- s- really fascinated with is the story of the band chumbawamba who's uh, from uh, the 80s and 90s british band who started out as a a real serious anarchist collective on the crass model um radicalized in the in the the thatcher era minor strikes that that brought us Billy Bragg and so on. But their takeaway from that was that there was a disconnect between the politics of the, the anarchist punks who were primarily middle-class dropouts um, and whose ethos was not primarily organized around work. It was more about the dole and scams and, and ways of being anti-work and opting out of the system rather than um, trying to preserve um, jobs in the, in a labor union context. And that if they, and their takeaway was that if they wanted to really create anthems of, of a blue collar working class, that they, what they actually had to do was engage with the mass culture that constituted that blue collar working class. Um, and, and they wrote songs like tub thumping, which, you know, these jock jams of the, of, of, of the decade, um, which, was a you know they were roundly accused of, of selling out their anarchist principles, but in a way, their pr- position was that they were more in line with their with their ideas of of um, you know of of po- of political anthems of inspirational anthems for the working class, uh, and so class really inter- interacts with all this in in really interesting and, and provocative ways. Um, well, Franz, uh, Nikolai, uh, I, as I've said before, I, um, love your music. I love your piano playing. And I always thought I picked up hints of, uh, Antonio Gramsci in it. But, um, now I know for sure. <laughs> um, it's, it's freaking amazing to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming in. And your piece is wonderful, by the way. Thank you. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, I'm going to endorse two things related to the very sad loss uh, the day before we taped of the French actress Jean Moreau. I was sad about this all day yesterday, even though she was 89 and she had a long, wonderful life. Um, Jean Moreau, the French New Wave actress, but probably best known for the playing the love object in Jules and Jim, but who also has been in Orson Welles movies, Louis Manuel movies, Tony Richardson movies. She was just, you know, one of the great actresses of the sort of 60s onward in France. Um has left us. And so there are many beautiful things written about her and tributes to her online yesterday, but two that I wanted to recommend in particular, if you want to read about her life and also hear her speak, although the second will require you understanding French, Stephanie Zaharik's uh, obituary tribute in Time magazine. Um, full disclosure, Stephanie is a friend of mine, but the reason that we became friends in the first place was because I loved her writing so much. And uh, she writes really, really beautifully on Moreau, not just as an actress, but as a singer, which she was in France and a director of her own films. She directed three films and as just sort of a cultural force who was also a, a partner at some point to many of the great French intellectuals of that era. She had an affair with Louis Malle and Francois Truffaut and many others, and in a way sort of lived the life of the free spirit, Catherine, who's at the center of Jules and Jim. So um, so that's the first one, Stephanie Saharic on Jean Moreau, really beautiful in Time magazine. And the second is this eight-minute interview that I came across reading about her yesterday between Marguerite Duras, the novelist, and, and Jean Moreau. So Marguerite Duras was also a filmmaker who has directed Jean Moreau, but this was an interview that they conducted on the set of a different film that, that Moreau was making in 1965. So you see her in that French New Wave era talking about uh, working with the director she's worked with and how she gets meaning out of a script or doesn't and what she would do if cinema ceased to exist. That's the very first question that Duras asks her. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a very French question. It's very French. And she, of course, smokes beautifully. 
beautifully and elegantly as she answers the question. So, yes, you have to know French to follow their conversation. Even if you, your French is pretty rudimentary, though, you can just admire the incredible speaking style and obvious intelligence of both women in the conversation. Uh, so we'll put links to both of those on the show page. Stephanie Zaharik and Marguerite Duras talking to and about Jean Moreau. R.I.P. Oh, wonderful. Julia, what do you have? Uh, well, I want to endorse something that if you are like 12,376,435 people on YouTube, you have already consumed, but perhaps you are not among that number. And if you are not, I would recommend to you that you check out the official video for boys from the pop musician Charlie XCX. So Charlie XCX is a really wonderful pop star and songwriter. She came to prominence first for her writing. She wrote the song I Love It by Iconopop, which I think was one of our strut picks or certainly at least an endorsement by me a couple years ago. Totally great song. Um, she wrote perhaps less uh, marvelously the Iggy Azalea hit Fancy, which certainly was catchy. Um, she had her own hit with Boom Clap. She's like a, a songwriting pop songstress and force. In this video called Boys, she also is a director. And what she has done is convened uh, an array of mostly British hotties, mostly musicians, um, and asked them all to pose in various uh, alluring but kind of innocent pinup styles um, and just turned her female gaze on them for the extent of the video. And something like, I don't know, 65 different prominent men ranging from Mark Ronson and Jack Antonoff to Tom Daly, the British diver, to one of the Jonas Brothers, to Riz Ahmed, to uh, Diplo, to the rappers Wiz Khalifa and Ty Dolla Sign, uh, to Ezra Koenig of Vampire Weekend, who like very alluringly raises his eyebrows while he brushes his teeth amusingly in pink. Um, anyway, you got to watch it. I can't explain its power. I actually found it incredibly moving uh, almost in the way that I found the Wonder Woman pulling uh, Chris Pine from the submerged plane. Like, it's just not something you've seen before. It made me realize that when you do see images that are trying to objectify guys in like a music video context, they tend to be much more like perfume ad, quote unquote, sexy, like sort of naked and those like weird triangular muscles down by the waistline. It's like the call me maybe video guy, not sexy at all. Yeah, like they're just sort of this idea of sexy that actually has nothing to do with what's actually attractive and the kind of innocence and goofiness and like personality, like the appreciation of the bodily charms of these guys, but also like their little winking bits of personality that shine through in all the different varied goofy things that you see them doing. It's so charming and it feels so modern and novel and has made me even more in love with Charlie XCX than I was previously. So uh, check out the video for boys. It is a, a feminist tour de force and also just awesome. Ogling Riz Ahmed is enough excuse for me. He's yeah. Check it out. I'm I'm curious for your response, Dana. All right. Well, um, trigger warning. I'm gonna um I'm gonna endorse something you probably can't see or consume or experience in any way, um, shape or form. But if you can, I highly recommend <laughs> pizza in a lockbox in Vermont. Um, pizza the mem- the memory of pizza inside Steve's own brain. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you what pizza, what town, or whether it was the state of Vermont. Um, but uh, in lieu of that, um, I uh, I live near a, um, a Summerstock theater, and they're doing a run of uh, Sweeney Todd, the great Sondheim musical. And Sweeney Todd was my um, my Hamilton. It was uh, first uh, went up on Broadway when I was the same age as my daughter, and um, lo and behold, she's completely into it. So here is something you can consume, which is the cast album of Sweeney Todd, which uh, had Lynn Carew and Angela Lansbury back when I saw it. And I think that that's the recording too. The songs are incredible. Um, Pushed the American musical in a completely new, very operatic, uh, somewhat modernist uh, uh, direction. Uh, Sondheim's music did. It was, uh, it's very funny. It's very wicked. But the performance at my local Summerstock Theater by this repertory company is utterly fantastic. And I'm here to tell you that first of all, the, the singing is easily Broadway quality. And they are they are singing and performing and acting their guts out in this musical under very mod- modest circumstances, uh, and it's it's a, a genuinely wonderful mounting of the show. I mean, it's got to be one of the most, if not the most, American musical to uh, to perform uh, to put on. And they've risen to the challenge with a minimalist set. Um, 
and I can tell you a very uh, um, a very minimal budget, and they've done something quite beautiful and very alive and very specific. They're not feeding off of the memory of other people's performances of this. They've they've done something extraordinary. So the the theater is called the Mac Hayden Theater. It's in Chatham, New York. You have till August sixth to see it. It's yes, it's in Chatham, New York, but that's very close to Hudson, New York. If you happen to be going to Hudson, you have a car. You have some way of getting ten fifteen minutes outside of Hudson. It is worth the trip i'm pounding the table on this one if you can't um don't 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 hate me just go and listen to the original sondheim musical sweeney todd it's wonderful and then very quickly i want to add i want to endorse uh, inspired by franz nikolai's wonderful contribution to our show today uh the album boys and girls in america by uh the band that he is currently in still um the hold steady came out in 06 is just a kick-ass rock and roll album it's bruce springsteen meets john berryman and franz is um uh, keyboard playing on it is is more than just notable i mean he's just he, he, he it drives so much of the music it's a powerful and intricate playing he's just an amazing piano and keyboard player but the album is a great record boys and girls in america by the hold steady those are my endorsements dana thank you so much thanks Stephen. julia thanks a lot thank you You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers, as always, is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of wonderful shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. What happened then? Well, that's the play, and he wouldn't want us to give it away. Not Sweeney. Not Sweeney Todd. But he's the part of the feast. Sweet. Sweet.